Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, folks, I'm frustrated. I, you know, it probably showed up in the post I did this morning that was titled something like, uh, you have to tell your story. And one of the things is, you know, one of the most overrated things in political conversations, in conversations about electoral politics is messaging. And why is that? Well, that's because, you know, just like primitive humans came up with rituals and, you know, incantations to the to the wheat gods and stuff and the rain gods and stuff, everybody wants to have a sense that they're in control or 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 have some ability to control and impact the world around them. And in the primitive world of politics and thinking about politics, messaging often plays that role. Things aren't going great. Well, you're not getting your message out. Messaging should be better. You got to be tougher. You got to be this. You got to be that. And the reason it is often overrated is, again, we all want to think things are more in our control than they are. That's human nature. We all have you know, magical thinking. We do that thing. We're walking down the street and you don't want to step on the cracks in the sidewalk, right? We're all trying to have a sense of, of more control over the, over the world that we're in. But having said this, the White House and Democrats really got to do a better job of messaging. <laughs> it's really true. And, and I've just been really frustrated about it. And it's kind of been, it, it's sort of been building up in me uh, recently. Because look, this is not a great time for the Democratic Party. And when I, I say that, I don't mean like it's, it's, it's on its way out. or I mean, you know, the polls are bad. It's kind of the winter of the Democrats' discontent right now. President Biden's like, you know, 10 points underwater in the public approval. The things that are getting discussed tends to tend to be right now things that Republicans want to talk about, things that hurt Democrats. But over the last few months, as Democrats went down this rabbit hole, which they're still only partly emerging from, of arguing amongst themselves over these two bills and kind of sort of forgetting about the dialogue with the country at large, there's just been a very pessimistic tone. And you see this, you see this everywhere. You see this in polls about the public mood. People think things are going in the wrong direction. People are, think the economy's bad, all this kind of stuff. And yet, that is a, at best a very incomplete picture. And there's a lot of things about the economy that are going great. You have to tell the story. And you have to tell it not in a way that, you know, people like me tell things. You need to repeat simple things over and over and over again. You know, a lot of us guffawed constantly when the old guy used to say in every, every public appearance everywhere, the lowest African-American unemployment ever, the lowest Hispanic unemployment ever, Asian, blah, 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 blah. Now, as many of us said, that's just a permutation of the unemployment rate being low. It's going to be kind of low for everyone, you know, in relative terms. And it also wasn't really anything that Donald Trump had done. And yet that message through crazy comic repetition, I mean, it's one of the biggest things I remember from his presidency. 
And there's a lot of things about the economy that are like that right now. It doesn't change everything. You know, we don't look back and say, oh, last couple of years, the Carter administration, well, better messaging might have, he'd be real. Well, you know, it's not that simple. They're like fundamentals. But it really is an issue right now. And just this morning, just this morning, at least when I saw it this morning, there's an article uh, that in the, in the, uh, in the, I saw it in the Washington Post that basically says for the last six months, every month, the jobs numbers have been revised upward like a month later. Now, this is how job reports work. When, you know, when we talk about the jobs report, that's a preliminary report. And then they're finalized like six weeks later or something like that. Every month for the last six months, that number has gone up a lot of times dramatically over the last four months. Each month, it's been at least 100,000 more jobs. In August, the initial report was 250,000 jobs, and the revised was about 500,000 jobs. That's a big difference. And in this post story, they said over the last six months, there's 625,000 additional jobs that the Bureau of Labor Statistics just missed. And the period over which they have been missing them is basically the period that President Biden's popularity has been going consistently down. I don't think this is, you know, I don't think this is like a conspiracy on the part of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I think what it is, and I'm, I'm pretty certain of this, is that COVID has just shaken everything up, that it has made it harder to collect the data, basically. But the key thing is, this is getting a lot of attention today, but it's not new information. These job revisions have been coming up each month. Just no one pays a lot of attention. That's like, you know, that's fine print. No one, that, that's not a headline. The White House has known about these things. Everybody who kind of follows these things knows about these things, but, but they haven't made it the center of the conversation. You got to tell your story. And, you know, look, Democrats are really hoping that like, wow, president's pretty unpopular right now, but, you know, we've got a year to the midterms. Hopefully this happens and that happens. And this is the nadir going to go, you know. You think, oh, it can only go up from here. Well, you know, obviously you can always go down further, but that's the hope. But, you know, what, what is that old line? Um, you know, the, <laughs> that line, the kind of uh, some people's, you know, God helps those who help themselves. You know, you have to, to get lucky. You've got to do the, you got to do the legwork that gives you the chance to be lucky. You got to tell your own story. So we're going to talk today about uh, this, you know, uh, jobs reports revision, jobs reports uh, mess up, something like that. We're also going to talk about you know the big thing that Republicans are pushing and that is real, which is inflation, and uh, and a few other things. And we're going to talk about those with my co-host Kate Riga. But before that, let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Do you like to start your day with a healthy blend of coffee and doom scrolling? Yeah, that's like my life at this point. Uh, then you need coffee that gives you enough energy to fend off the wild horde of feral dweebs or whatever obstacles you face. It's a good copy here. Uh, a Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy to brew up super strong coffee concentrate. Of course, if you wake up feeling a little less than ready to battle your enemies, you can always add an extra splash of water or milk to tame the caffeine. With Grady's, every batch you brew has infinite possibilities. The Ready to discover your perfect brew? Get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, uh, co-host Kate Riga, what is uh, what is going on? Uh, so much, and yet so little. I was up on the hill uh, yesterday. You, you can't. You can't. You can't sound so world weary. <laughs> We're telling our own story here. It's funny We're though. To turn I have the tide to say. here a bit. Being, I was up on the hill yesterday on the Senate side, and it was like one of the most kind of downtrodden I've ever heard the press corps. I think it was just this idea of like, you know, most people who were there are covering reconciliation. And so it's just like, how do you kind of write iterative stories about this when it's, you know, this stop start process and then it kind of goes into weeks long lulls with basically everyone saying like it's gonna happen soon you know or we're on track we're at the 
the second yard line kind of stuff. And everyone's just like, oh my gosh, this is an endless groundhog day. No, but we did, but but they did pass the Biff and they had they that did pass uh, the big, big signing ceremony. Uh, was it yesterday or Monday? I can't remember. Monday. Mo- Monday. Mm-hmm. So two days ago. That is, uh, th- you know, that's behind us now. And, uh, you know, a lot of progressives are... <laughs> sort of hard to say what, you know, who counts under that label at this point, but we're worried that kind of like, you know, now these people are going to pull a fast one and, and, and the BBB isn't going to happen. But what's the, give us a sense there. What is, what do the dynamics seem to be? And maybe more concretely, what is the, what is the chain of events we're anticipating? Are we waiting again on, you know, uh, CBO scores. What are the give us the the tent poles in the calendar going forward? Yeah, so it's it's funny because we're in this weird spot right now, which we've been at in other parts of this process, where the action is in the house right now, but it's everything that happens in the house is prelude to what happens in the Senate. So it's you know it's this weird kind of um, dislocation of where the activity is. But yeah, so basically, Democratic leadership is hoping for um, a Tuesday vote on reconciliation in the House. People think it'll probably be more like Friday, perhaps even over the weekend. Um, that's around the same time that a CBO score is expected to come out. And when you so, say the weekend, you basically mean 10 days from now, not this weekend. No, I mean this weekend. Oh, okay. We're looking at Thursday, Friday, Saturday kind of timeline. Oh, got it. Okay. Sorry, yeah. my mistake. My mistake. No, no, no. And um, – Right. With the CBO score, the fear there was that, you know, moderates would freak out if the score showed that the bill was not fully paid for or that some of the pay fors weren't as robust as others think they were. That, at least in the House, that doesn't really seem like it's going to be a problem. Um, You know, reporters have been feeling out House moderates this week about, you know, how are you going to react if it's not fully paid for? And the general response has been, you know, there can be differences of opinions, differences of estimates. I think I'm going to be okay with it. So it, it seems like it's going to be wrapped up fairly neatly in the House whenever they can kind of get all the procedural stuff together to pass it. Um, and then next week is Thanksgiving. So all of Congress will be on recess. And that'll be the time where the parliamentarian will scrub it and uh, go through to find any issues. And then you would expect when the Senate returns to start all the hoopla we kind of outlined uh, last episode to get the reconciliation bill across the line. And now something that I've been tracking recently is inflation, particularly this pretty much made up concern that the reconciliation bill will balloon the inflation rate. So basically, you know, the way that this was explained to me in my conversations is that the Democrats have a real inflation problem and an imaginary inflation problem. The real one is that we are seeing an inflationary spike right now. Um, The spike has grown from September to October and is showing more staying power than experts had forecasted initially. There are, you know, I talked to a bunch of economists about this. The The most common theory that I heard was that this is kind of just a sign of how much economic power the COVID pandemic still has. And that during the pandemic, there was a huge shift in consumer spending habits away from, you know, face-to-face services like gyms, doctor's appointments to durable goods, you know, pants, sourdough starter kits, what have you. And... That combined with the fact that some other COVID factors like outbreaks um, have contributed to snarling up the supply lines, in addition to the fact that they're overburdened with this like really big shift that the supply hasn't caught up with. Um, most people think that's the biggest reason for the inflationary spike. There's some debate on if the uh, the COVID relief package in March contributed to it. The two camps there are basically some people say, no, that money was a lifeline to people. Uh, You know, they needed it. Without it, they wouldn't have been spending anything at all. And then other people say that just gave them more money on top of what they already had, which contributed more to the up in demand that the supply couldn't keep up with. But regardless, there is a spike right now. 
that's a real problem for Democrats because no president wants to preside over an inflationary spike, no matter if the causes are largely out of his control. And then we have the imaginary thing. And that is that reconciliation will worsen the problem. And the reason why that got on anyone's radars at all is that Manchin tweeted after the numbers came out of the inf- you know the high inflation numbers and said, it's clear that inflation is getting worse, not better. It's not temporary. Um, and that really gave people flashbacks to his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal back in September, where he outlined the reason why he was opposed to a reconciliation package of $3.5 trillion. And he cited inflation, runaway inflation, as kind of the prime reason why he didn't want to spend that much money. Regardless of the fact that everyone I talked to said that that is just simply not going to happen because... The reconciliation bill will be nearly, if not completely paid for, and it pays out over a decade. You know, that's a really slow paying out of money. It just doesn't have the same potential inflationary threat as, say, a sudden burst of stimulus money into the economy might. So basically, now everyone's kind of watching to see if Manchin will use inflation if he'll conflate the two, the real problem and the imagined problem, and use it as pretext to slow down the reconciliation bill or to kind of kill it all together because he suggested before we need to take a strategic pause and see what's going on. Now, of course, that makes no sense because inflationary trends, you know, it's not something that will be determined in a month. It'll probably take a year to even see where we are. And he hasn't come out and said that yet. But that's what people are looking for, because if if he wants pretext to slow down the reconciliation bill, that might be what he reaches for. Right. So Two things that I saw, one going back to what you said uh, a few moments ago about the CBO score, and at least in the House, the, you know, kind of moderate holdout types, you know, kind of having a get along, go along attitude. Josh Gottheimer, who has been the most, uh, at least the most sort of vocal in that group, uh, a representative, relatively uh, new representative, two or three cycles, something like that, uh, from northern New Jersey. He yesterday, uh, God, I'm losing track. It was yesterday, the day before. Basically, CBO put out like kind of like advanced, you know, pre estimates saying that, well, you know, the, the, the money you're expecting to get from intensified IRS enforcement, it's not going to, you know, you, you're thinking it's going to be $400 billion. It's going to be $125 billion. Now, this seems like, oh, that's going to, you know, that's going to be the new drama and, and thing. And I was struck because Gonheimer put out this tweet like, yeah, these guys are always wrong. Not a problem. And I'm like, well, okay. Like, you know, I, I guess, I guess this has been, um, this has been worked out behind the scenes. And, and I think, um, substantively that that's, that's probably true. There, there's, we, we talked about, I think we talked about, um, last week, uh, you know, CBO has certain formulas and, 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 uh, models that they use and, the models that they use about tax enforcement can't really capture that some people will just kind of stop cheating if they know there's, you know, stronger enforcement. There's things like that that you can't quite capture. In any case, that sort of struck me like, okay, the <laughs> fix seems to be in in the house. They're just he's just dismissing this out of hand. The other thing is a little more amorphous, and that is something from someone we haven't talked about as much in the last few weeks, and that's Kirsten Cinema. Now, maybe 10 days ago, a week ago, something like that, her local paper, uh, I think it's the Arizona Republican, spacing on the name of the, of the big Arizona paper, two or three articles over the course of a week, all based on interviews with Cinema, and very friendly to her. And on the surface, it seems sort of like... Um, you know, just cinema, cinemizing, right? I mean, her her kind of standard stuff about why she, you know, why she acts the way she does. And then just uh, yesterday, I think, there was an article in the Post. She did a big interview with the Post. Now, all of these interviews have been very self-serving and her stuff about, you know, bipartisanship, all the kind of stuff you expect from cinema. But I've noticed something a little different. She doesn't do a lot of interviews. She's done a number of interviews over the last two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. And if you put them together, despite their being very self-serving in the way that you would expect, 
they all suggest to me a basic pivot on her part. And that pivot being, ah, I'm a little too unpopular with Democrats at the moment. I need to, I need to kind of reposition from I am torpedoing everything to uh, not, that's not me. I just have a different way of going about it, but I'm part of the solution for the Democrats. I'm not, um, you know, not, not breaking everything. And, and if you look at these, look at all these different interviews, um, I think that's pretty clear. It's, it's subtle, but it doesn't make sense. She would come out, you know, and suddenly be like, you know, Elizabeth Warren all of a sudden. Um, but the thing is, I think it was again in this, in this, in this post interview where it was treated sort of offhandedly like, oh yeah, she's, she's, she's good with the BBB now. She's, you know, it, it, it seemed to, she seemed to be telegraphing like, okay, yeah, I'm done with that. That's mansion now. Like she's, she's out of the torpedoing the BBB line of work as it were. Is that your sense that, 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 that she seems to be her issues are addressed? I agree with the, definitely with the reposition. I think she also did an interview with Politico that was kind of similarly Fluffy. It's possible I'm I'm talking about the political one rather than the post. That may be I don't know if there's two or or, or yeah. One, well, yeah. I've I've just been struck by the media availability in general because, like we've said, she doesn't answer hallway questions, which I I do want to emphasize is very very rare for lawmakers. Um, most of them kind of even if they don't like it, acknowledge that it's part of the job. Um, and this the political one or whatever one I saw this morning was similarly like geared towards like. She's the compromise guy, you know. She's the she's the centrist guy. Even though also, I think there was like a quote from Elizabeth Warren, like, "Yep, I love cinema. We disagree." Yeah, well, I think but, everyone loves but, cinema. But, until but she's it gets she's fast. yeah, ex- ex- exactly. But it it was it was um, good press work. These things kind of all come together, and and again, it was. I, I'm sure it's no accident that there's a lot in that interview that seems geared to getting Democrats not to completely cut the lifeline with her. Mm-hmm. I'm not the enemy. I know you don't like me, but I'm, 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 I'm not the enemy. You know, think twice before you start sending money to Ruben Gallego for the primary. Right. I mean, that sort it, of thing. It's quite a feat to rebrand. I refuse to raise taxes on the richest people into, hey, look, I just walk in the center of the aisle. But she's trying. She's clearly trying. And the other thing I would note of the kind of most difficult Democrats corner is uh, a quote came over this morning of Manchin and someone asked him, do you want to wait to vote on reconciliation till next year? That's part of kind of the the concern and the potential inflation pretext, et cetera, et cetera. And he just said something like, well, whenever it comes up for a vote, you know, whatever. And, you know, we don't want to read too much into Manchin what Manchin says at this point, because he's Manchin, he's Manchin, and it doesn't matter what he says until right. he's. You got to wait till he, what he says tomorrow because exactly. it's a new thing every day. But if that is kind of his posture at this point, just bring the damn thing up for a vote. I mean, like we're we're at a point where there aren't a ton of outstanding policy stuff that they're still fighting over. I mean, there's the fact that the House put paid leave back into the bill that, and that'll get probably stripped out by Manchin. But, you know, the things that have been down just in the trenches fighting over, you know, the Medicare stuff, the climate stuff, what have you, that's either on pause right now while the the House deals with their stuff. And that's why we're not hearing about it, or it's kind of been resolved and we're heading towards the finish line. So. And and I guess the one thing for, I mean, and I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, poo-poo or downplay the the work kind of I keep wanting to say progressives, but it's really not progressive. It's everyone else everyone besides those them. two right. um, have done kind of you know digging in, you know keeping some version of drug price negotiation, keeping you know these things. It it has been um, as you say down in the down in the trenches. But the other the other sort of perspective on it when we say like okay they're they're finally on board. Well, they should be on board. 
Because, like, they agreed to, they got everything they wanted, right? right? I mean, they're sort of like, it's, 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 what is it? You know, it's 1.75 or 1.85, mm-hmm. depending on how you count it at this point. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's not surprising they'd be on board. They got what they wanted. They certainly should be on board. And I think that is, that is sort of the, um, that is, is sort of some of the, you know, manic exasperation from everything else. Like, dude, do not bring up some, totally new thing you got everything you wanted like the, right. the, the the reward for you getting every fucking thing you wanted should be you'll vote for it not come right. up with some like new thing and it's nuts that that's like not a guarantee at this point you know i mean it's, it's the theme of the whole game right every one of the 50 democratic senators has unlimited veto power and these two have chose to chosen to exercise it over Every single proposal they don't love. And that's just not how the rest of them have acted. Um, I did want to um, mention before we move on briefly, because we addressed Reed's question about how the CBO works last week, but there was some audio problems with that part. So it got cut. Um, But just you you summarize it a bit, but just to kind of wrap up what we said about it, Reed was asking, um, are the CBO scores historically accurate? And how do you make sure that the CBO itself as an entity is nonpartisan? Um, and basically what we said there is CBO scores are usually pretty good for like the first year. And then after that severe drop off in what they can predict. And that's basically because they're trying to take into account so many factors that we don't know yet, you know, employment rates, inflation, what have you. Um, and especially because with big legislation that's meant to change people's behaviors, it's really hard to predict that based on models that are predicated on old behaviors. Um, So, you know, they have all of that difficulty in their forecasting. The general kind of conclusion that I saw from researching this is the CBOs kind of know worse than anyone else who tries to do this forecasting. Yep. Yep. And when it comes to their impartiality, the, the head of the CBO is chosen by a party and it has a, a party affiliation, but they really are economists. They are generally, you know, kind of technocrats. They don't, they're not these like dyed in the wool partisans. And the people who make up the CBO, which is a, in the neighborhood of, you know, upper 200, 300 people are all pretty much kind of like wonky expert types. So I think it's become very common practice for you know, Democrats and Republicans to basically say, well, they're always wrong because they don't want the score to dent the chances of their legislation. But the real problem with it, as as we discussed, is that the CBO has just kind of been given this like mythic power of prediction and their their estimate is taken as the gold standard, the definite thing that's going to happen. And much like the parliamentarian, it's kind of like these features were set up in these kind of advisory roles to help lawmakers be better informed as they legislate. And instead, they've taken on and this- And not like, to be dependent on the executive branch as right, a key, that as a key too. point. That, yeah. That's why that's how the CBO came about to begin with, because Congress didn't want to rely on the executive branch to give them all the scoring information. But you know, they've become imbued with this totemic power of like they are gods and what they say is absolutely true. And that, you know, in neither case is that true for the parliamentarian is just someone kind of giving their, their well-versed, well-educated opinion. And for CBO, it's giving an economic forecast, which is, you know, a tricky feat to pull off at best. Yeah. And I, I, I think the issue it's, the way to think about CBO scores in, in on a, on a substantive level is not that, it's, you know, kind of partisanized by one party or another. There's some of that at the margins because the leadership, as Kate said, is is chosen by the party in power. It's more that they institutionally have these models and formulas that they work within. And some of those tend to be good. Some of them are less good. So it's not like when they do one of these scores... It's not like you get a bunch of economists together and they say, hmm, what do we make of this? It doesn't work that way. They have these kind of like, you know, as it were, off the rack formulas. When we get a tax, when, you know, when we get tax increases, here's the formula we use to see what they do. So that to that point, it, it's, it's, uh, it's not perfect. No one's perfect. I think to, to Kate's point, they tend to be about as good as other people who forecast economics, people, you know, market forecast, you know, 
people that uh, organizations that the equities markets follow, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, they're not bad, but they're as as most of us do. They have a hard time predicting the future. Right, and I, I would add that there is kind of a broader progressive complaint here than that things like you know big sweeping social spending bills that you know progressives would argue could do a huge amount to improve the human condition in America would probably score really poorly because you know unless you're paying for it fully or doing that kind of thing so there is also just the complaint that like we've reached a position where something being fully paid for is good and something not being fully paid for is bad and a lot of that I think has to do with kind of you know the the debt hawkery and various things like that but you know that is kind of the assumption that also goes back to your point that is a concern external to the job of the CBO right their job is to score is not not to make qualitative judgments about how important something is mm-hmm. so it, it that is kind of similar to the parliamentarian stuff right her job is to say you know bob bird came up with these rules 40 years ago here is my interpretation of what they mean well you know that's just her it's it's advice and um it goes back to your point that it's been given this kind of totemic power that the cbo decides what is good and what's necessary and what should happen and what what doesn't, but to defend them, that's not their job. They're supposed right. to make, they're supposed to use um, as non biased as possible, you know, econometric scorekeeping to make predictions about the costs in, in, do, you know, in, in, in financial terms of, of different legislation. Um, and, Again, that's they're not supposed to. They are not supposed to make a judgment of like, well, it's going to increase the deficit by a hundred billion dollars, but a lot of kids are going to eat more, and that's <laughs> you know, that's just that is an extra economic um, uh, point. So right. it does it does go to, it does go to this issue of we elect legislators to make decisions about things, not to uh, create panels of experts that they pass the buck to. Exactly. Okay, let's move to something totally different. Um, Paul Gosar. So I'm sure anyone who has any access to the internet saw this, but on Sunday, Gosar tweeted out and put on his Instagram a video that was, it's like the intro sequence, I think, to a, a Japanese anime show that basically had Gosar's face was superimposed over this kind of sword-wielding character who stabs this big monster character that has AOC's face on it in the neck, killing it. And then at the end of the video, uh, the Gosar character raises his swords to Joe Biden's face, you know, preparing to attack. And then the middle of that is just a kind of nuts progression of images of like immigrants crossing the Rio Grande coming to the southern border. Some of it is blood splattered. It has words going across the screen like drugs, trafficking, gangs, money. And then it's got Gosar sometimes and the Capitol sometimes and like horse mounted border law enforcement. And then and that's the video. That's the video that he put out. And then it's really hard to capture these these things. It's so weird. And it's like rightfully the part where he's, you know, seeming to cheer violence against the Democratic uh, lawmakers and president is the part that's gotten the most attention. But it is like the shift to the kind of immigration fear mongering is so weird. And like, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. Okay. But so he puts out this video, the kind of predictable backlash ensues. His spokesperson puts out a statement that says everyone needs to relax, essentially. Um, AOC responds from the the climate summit in Scotland, she called him <laughs> like a bundle of wet toothpicks, which I thought was kind of creative, um, but made a very real and valid point of, you know, McCarthy's not going to do anything. Uh, you know, institutions don't protect women of color. I mean, and for her particularly, she has been on the receiving end of this kind of stuff quite a bit, especially from, you know, these most, these right wingers in the house and then 
you know, that brand of their followers. So today, the House is going to vote on a resolution to censure, to censure, censure, censure. I always have a, I always have a, it's, yeah, it's this little wrinkle. That was like so alarming. I was like, I've forgotten how to say this word to censure Gosar and to strip him of his committee assignments, basically because McCarthy wouldn't act. Um, If you're getting Marjorie Taylor Greene flashbacks, that's appropriate. You know, apparently Gosar apologized to the Republican caucus in in private. private. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's where we are. They only need a simple majority. So it's kind of a foregone conclusion at this point that he will be censured. The only real point of drama is or intrigue how many Republicans will join in that vote. As of now, it's our usual suspects of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger who have publicly said they plan to vote in favor of the censure. Um, So we'll be seeing if anyone else joins them. You know, one of the things about, I mean, it's so weird. And one of the things that is, that is so weird about stories like this is that in this video, Gosar is, is embodied as this heroic martial arts sword wielding dude. And he's just like, a kind of a nebbishy little weirdo, <laughs> right? Who kind of who who he's just weird and 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 creepy and not like a you know he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. But one of the things that is one of the many things that is so weird about this saga is that what Kate was describing before the anime stuff. One of the dimensions of this is that. That is an idiom that is very big in the 4chan, 8chan, uh, extremist, weirdo, white nationalist world. So one of the one of the dimensions of it, it isn't just like, oh, we're not really used to or willing to accept when a member of Congress puts up a kind of like a, a faux snuff film about him killing other other colleagues, right? But it's also that um, he is speaking in an idiom, a visual idiom that is from the far right white nationalist world. And it's a little hard to capture that. Like when Kate said before, this, you know, they took like an introduction from some Japanese anime something or other. Like you hear that without any context, you're like, that's like, okay, where where does that come from? Well, this is where it comes from. Again, it's, it's, he's speaking in that idiom. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not the worst part about it. But it's something that's worth understanding because there are these meta messages that in some ways are, are more um, in some ways are more damning, more catering to incitement than the 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 bare message itself. When you speak in that language, you're speaking to the communities where, you know, every every so often now we hear about some like act of mass violence. Right, the sort of um, synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh a couple years ago, uh, you know, all these kind of things. You know, when you see news reports about these things, you're always like, "Oh, it turns out they were on this one message board, and they posted this." It's the it's these sites. So when you speak in this language, you're speaking in the in the language of the people who actually go and and commit mass murder. Right. And we should say that, you know, Gosar is not a stranger to these communities. Uh, <laughs> exactly. he, um, he has cozied up frequently to Nick Fuentes, who's, you know, kind of the unholy combination of a, a white supremacist, Holocaust denier, anti-Semite. Uh, Gosar spoke at a conference after uh, or during which, you know, Fuentes said, fretted about the United States losing its its core white, uh, you know, demographic features. Um we one of our reporters, Matt Shuham, did a a report about how Gosar follows on Twitter a bunch of people who are just outwardly white supremacists. You know, like it's in their bios. So uh, he doesn't shy away from this kind of thing. Um, and it's funny because, well, not funny, but you know, we're now kind of looking at 
what House Republicans are going to do about it, which is nothing. And then meanwhile, the big issue that's kind of taking up their attention is whether or not to punish the 13 House Republicans who voted with Democrats to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Like that seems to have more driving force behind it than punishing a man who just he, he posted a video fantasizing about killing his colleague. I mean, that wouldn't fly at any normal place of work. Um, but instead, you have kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene winkingly being like, if McCarthy doesn't punish these 13, you know, he's going to have a struggle on his hands if he tries to be speaker when we retake the House. And McCarthy basically told the caucus, cool it on calling for the punishment of these 13 until Democrats are done passing their reconciliation bill. And then we can then we can maybe revisit it. We'll just leave that open ended. Right. We've right, got other right. things on our plate right now. Yeah. So that's going to happen today. Um, let's take a couple questions. First from Lee, he says, we keep hearing about how Democrats need to be better at messaging. And it's certainly true. It's absurd that we refer to these bills by their cost rather than, than what they do. But I have to wonder if Dems manage to devise a perfect framing and maintain perfect message discipline, how big of a difference do we really think that would make? Uh, most people are doing pretty well economically in this country, but they're under the impression that the economy is going to hell because of inflation. And that's all they hear about. I feel like we scold Dems for their lack of message discipline, but we're kind of ignoring the elephant in the room. Also pointing to the fact that Biden's approval ratings are approaching Trump's. So what do you think about that? You know, as some of you know, uh, a few years ago, I set up this project to, to build a sailboat a small sailboat for myself. And I did that. And so it's a little sailboat that's like nine feet long. And one of the things you learn when you're sailing is that the wind is the wind and you can't control the wind. But sailing, you can can do a lot of things in the context of different wind conditions. You can almost sail into the wind if you know how to do it. And I think that's an instructive uh, model to think about with messaging. You know, there are all these things uh, that you say. Um, there is There are ways in which the DC press corps remains really wired for the GOP. But that's kind of like the weather, right? That's just a fact that you have to accept. But you can, you can, you are not helpless in the face of it. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do. And so you can, again, it's not fair. It is what it is. Um, but effective messaging can make a pretty big difference. Um, you know, is uh, if if there's a terrible storm outside, you're going to get a little wet. But you know, if you if you bundle up and and uh, uh, carry an umbrella, you're going to do a lot better than if you go out in normal clothes. And this is also part of my segment called "The Filibuster is the Root of All Problems," which is that Democrats, particularly here, have to figure out how to market a bill that has a bajillion stuff in it. They have to figure out how to kind of, assuming they pass reconciliation, how do you message each of these disparate parts that are kind of just all mashed together into this one big bill? And that's something that getting rid of the filibuster, I think, would have a huge effect on because then you pass, you know, the child tax credit by itself and you campaign on that for a week. And then you pass one of the climate uh, tax credits and you campaign on that for a week and then something else. And it's like, oh my God, so productive. You know, it's like when you, when you separate it all out, I mean, they would have stuff, new stuff to trumpet stuff new enough that the press corps doesn't get bored of it and move on constantly. But because of the filibuster and they're forced to do the entire agenda in one package, it kind of just gets boiled down to the stuff largely that people are fighting over. That becomes the only thing that gets covered. And then I've heard this so much from lawmakers who keep saying, you guys won't cover what's in the bill. Why won't you cover it? And it's like, okay, first of all, I personally have written many stories about things that dropped out of your stupid bill. So, you know, watch it. But second of all, I mean, that's something you guys got to figure out how to do better. How to, you know, there are totally media biases at play here. Absolutely. You know, media wants to write about conflict um, and everything that's new is prioritized against above anything that's old, even if that old thing is still newsworthy. But it is a task that they're going to have to figure out how to do, how to highlight the different pieces of this bill in a way that keeps people interested and keeps people learning, oh, there's stuff for me personally in this bill, you know, especially because the naming conventions, especially the reconciliation one, are just all over the place. You know, it's like 
no one wants to use Build Back Better, but some people use BBB and some people use BIF for the other one. Some people call it reconciliation. The New York Times calls it the social spending bill. I mean, it's just even that shows that it's not really marketed in a super kind of solid way. You know what I mean? I think, you know, as, as is often the case in life, it's really important to hold two very true things in your mind at one time. One is that there are lots of structural, historical, coalitional reasons why, why these things are hard mm-hmm. and that there are, it's, it's not just that everybody's stupid. It's not that there's an easy way to do it that you figured out and has not occurred to anybody else. There are lots of challenges to doing this stuff. And Kate has just mentioned some of them. That said, you know, life is challenges. You, you, you need to, you need to um, accept the terrain you find yourself on. And then you, you, you figure out ways to manage them as effectively as possible. They're both true. And it's that, that's, that's the reality. And it's, it is, it's really important to keep both of those things in mind at once. It's, it's, not, um, it's not the easiest necessarily, and it can create a level of cognitive dissonance, but you can't see the whole picture unless you're holding both of those in your mind at once. And that is neither, um, that should neither um, spur a sense of helplessness or a sense of everything's obvious, which when everything's obvious and no one else sees it but you, that's kind of its own version of helplessness. We have to be engaged with the real difficulties that we, that we see in front of us in politics, just as is the case in, in our own lives. And we have another question from Douglas who says, setting aside Joe Manchin's goofy insistence on a work requirement for those already working and wanting paid leave, doesn't every member of Congress essentially have paid leave? And this is actually really interesting. I went down like a little rabbit hole of looking at this stuff because my kind of foundational knowledge coming to this was like, yeah, lawmakers leave all the time. You know, it, it's kind of not even notable. You know, it's it's a pretty frequent thing that there'll be a vote in the Senate that I'm covering that's like 50 to 49. And I have to reach out to, you know, some Senate staff to be like, who who was the person who wasn't there? Right. Um, and so uh, Rosa DeLauro, who's a, a congresswoman in the House, she wrote this piece that was Basically, if it's good enough for Congress, why isn't it good enough for America? And talked about how when she had ovarian cancer and she had to leave and go, you know, get treatment and everything. It just nobody suggested that she wouldn't get paid her salary. It was just never a problem. Um, And that's, you know, that's pretty much true across the board. Whenever lawmakers have had these medical things or even sometimes unexplained absences, it's just not an issue. It It really isn't. But... Congress people's staff didn't have paid leave until October 2020 because it was embedded in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is basically how you get money to the Pentagon, weirdly. But until then, it just depended on what your lawmaker's office policy was. And there's this flurry of stories from, you know, like, I guess, five years ago or so, where different outlets kind of called around to see how generous all the lawmakers' policies were. Now, of course, many did not call them back. So that can, you know, I I control F to mansion on all these lists and he never called anyone back. But, you know, it's I just found that to be completely nuts, something that I didn't know that the, you know, the amount you get a certain amount of unpaid leave by law, but the amount of paid leave you got totally depended on the generosity of your particular uh, lawmaker that you worked for. Kudos to Tammy Duckworth, who back when all these stories was written was giving the most of everyone. But that just totally blew my mind. Yeah, it's a funny thing. Con- Congress, um, you know, Congress often passes different laws for itself. And that's not as crazy as it sounds. Part of it has to do with um, 
part of it has to do with separation of power stuff. Part of it has to do if it's nice to make laws for yourself, right? Or not make laws for yourself. And as you say, in a lot of cases, it's 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 sort of treated as every office kind of is its own business and it just makes its own policies. But what you said before about like, you know, when members have it, no one, you know, no one thinks they shouldn't get paid. Some of that is just a different version of something we know broadly in society, which is that of course, executives get paid leave, right? That's, it's not even a matter of it's a policy. It's just sort of like a given, you know, the, the top dog kind of their job, they are allowed to manage their lives in the context of their job. That's just part of, you know, executive C-suite life, basically. And it's different for people who, who aren't the, you know, the big cheese, right? So in a sense, it's, it's, it's almost, this isn't defending Congress, it's, but it's almost like that is just a, another version of what we know from society at large. Right. Yeah. I just, I think it hadn't fully struck me until I got Douglas's question, like how galling that is. The truth that, you know, lawmakers can by and large do what they please, but they're kind of, you know, we're all sitting watching, waiting to see if universal paid leave will be viable because of the whims of, well, one lawmaker who can pretty much hightail it back to West Virginia whenever he feels like it. You know, it's 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 funny. You said that it was part of a defense authorization bill. You know, con- uh, legislation has always been a weird thing. Things get stuck in different places to, you know, there's horse trading and stuff like that. But it does seem like I'm not sure whether this is, but it sounds like something that's another example of the sort of the brokenness of the institution um, that, you know, we find out like, oh, that got that got dealt with in a defense authorization bill. I suspect what that is, is that things like that normally happen because the defense authorization bill has to, everybody's mm-hmm. got to vote for it. It has mm-hmm. to pass. So you kind of get it in there and then you know it's a, it's a done deal. That's not, that's not all... Um, something new under the sun. You know, legislation has always been, had dimensions like that, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of aspects of brokenness in, 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 in the current Congress. It's funny you should mention that because right smack at the start of this term, Carolyn Maloney of New York uh, introduced her bill to codify 12 weeks of paid family leave for, you know, congressional staffers. And, uh, checked how it's doing in bill check. It has not gotten past the point of being introduced. So I think that that theory holds water. So was it was it in the defense authorization bill? Was that just kind of as an administrative thing as opposed to making it law? Like I'm trying to understand the difference. Well, there. It, this defense bill has to be re-upped every year. Oh, got it. So it's just kind of year by year. Right. And she's it. trying to get it in a permanent state. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So is that it? That's, That's all it. we got? Mm-hmm. All right. Let me remind everybody, uh, Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. All right. All right. See you next Later. week. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song, and thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe wherever you listen. 